Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here at the galleries at Moore College radio station, TGMR. And I'm here today with Imani Roach, who is the new managing editor of Art Blog. Hello, everyone. And with Carlos Roa. Hi. Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Thanks for being here. Carlos is an artist. He's putting on a fringe performance, a solo performance that he is producing himself. And he just, it'll be at um, Tyre, Puerto Ricanio from September 7th to the 15th. And uh, it's about, it's called Andean Mountains, and it is about personal geography. So, Carlos, thanks for being here, and tell us about your performance. I think, A, we love Tayer Puerto Ricanio here at Art mm -hmm. Blog, so I'm delighted that it's going to be there. So, what's it going to be? What personal geography are you covering? So, initially, the concept for this whole thing was going to be. I mean, I guess I should backtrack by saying the idea for this started um, when, during my obsessive um, travels on Google Maps. I, do, I spend a lot of time on Google Maps. I like to go on Google Street View. I like to go wherever the maps take me, um, Just... wherever I can go on my spare time. And months ago, I discovered that um, you could actually visit Colombia, and you could actually visit several places in Colombia. Are and, you of Colombian oh, yes, yes, yes. ancestry? And um, I started thinking a lot about um, what it's like this being one of my very, like this being like the only understanding that I have of my own culture. Um, I mean, I was brought up in Miami and, um, you know, I, I was sort of raised in a very small family. And so, what many Latin youth sort of um, struggle with, I think, is trying to understand their own culture because they're so far removed from it because they have been displaced in one way or another. And I have thought a lot about, um, well, it would be interesting for me to do a tour of this, these places, or of Colombia, but really I can't necessarily do a true tour. I can only do a tour in the version of it that I understand it, you know, in the, in that, to that extent of it. And so I started thinking a lot about um, my experiences growing up, but also the experiences of a lot of Latin youth and the ways that um, they try to, for lack of a better word, translate um, their own experiences with what their elders tell them. Um, so the, one of the features of it is the Google Street View tour, but anime also plays this big role. Anime? Yes. Mm -hmm. Japanese anime? Yes. So there's something that I observed a lot with my students. Um, I teach at Thayer, and um, some of them are really, really into anime. And growing up, I, me and my friends were also really, really into anime. And I, and I often felt like um, a lot of Latin youth were so into this, um, into this, uh, this aesthetic, uh, this, uh, this art form of anime. And I began sort of drawing some kind of theory about why that is. And so what we have going on in this show is sort of um, these um, sequen anime sequences placed right next to telenovelas. And Can you tell us, for those mm -hmm. of, uh, people who are listening who don't know what anime is mm -hmm. exactly, yes. just describe a little bit what it is. So anime is based, it's, um, it's like animation. It is Japanese-style animation. and um, 
thinking about shows like uh, Full Metal Alchemist or Naruto or even Pokemon. These, um, you know, the, there's an animation style. Um, it's not necessarily uniform either. You know, it, it varies by artist. Um, like, for example, Miyazaki does a has a very different style um, that many contemporary anime um, illustrators and, and, or I should say, artists have um, sort of borrowed from or have um, uh, been inspired by. So there's a lot of features like, you know, big eyes. You know, that's generally a big staple of the, uh, of the style or um, very... Ex hmm? Fantasy, too. Isn't yeah. It's like there's it's a not huge, real. There is all. a huge fantasy element, a big sci-fi element. Sort of in general, a sense of escapism, I think, comes with attached to these, um, to these shows. And um, oftentimes, like, what comes before the anime is the manga. And that's when, um, you know, before they even um, make the anime, it starts out as a manga. Like, these people are illustrators first. And then if the manga picks up and has enough traction, um, has enough of an audience, generally these become anime. So manga is like a comic book? Yeah, or a graphic it's, like, novel? It's, a, it's a graphic novel, I would say. And, um, you know, it's generally drawn in this style. Um, and then that sort of becomes almost like the blueprints for the anime. Or, or sometimes they don't intend for it to be that way. It varies by the artist and what their, you know, their attitude is about it. But um, typically, that's how animes are done. That's the style. That's sort of um, many of the ideas about anime. So when it comes to how it sort of runs parallel with Latin culture, I observed that there was a lot of big similarities between the animation style of an anime and the performance of a telenovela. And in the, the the idea of these big expressions, ay Dios mío, and like all these um, these big big um, just these big um, expressions of emotion. It, it's very um, it's very very heightened. Um, and I and if you actually look historically about where these two things come from, anime is very much inspired by um, exaggerated forms of kabuki theater. And then many um, Latin folks consider telenovelas to be sort of like low-brow theater. And in essence, telenovelas are in many ways very, very similar to melodramas. They are very, it's very much this, um, this way of um, these sensationalist <laughs> uh, events that happen in a story. You know, someone gets pregnant, or someone unmarried gets pregnant, or something, or somebody's a witch. You know, for the, and these very, um, just these very heightened events that um, happen. And, I, and so I sort of observed that many Latin youth, part of the reason why they might be so into anime was because, you know, they, they see that similarity in the telenovelas. And so maybe I thought to myself, well, maybe they don't necessarily understand the telenovelas. So they, they sort of latch onto this other thing that makes sense to them. Could it be generational? Maybe It is parents... a generational thing, too, because, um, I mean, it, it varies by um, where we're going. I think charter schools here in Philadelphia are very good about um, teaching kids Spanish and making sure like, that they, are, they learn a second language, being really diligent about that. But a lot of Spanish youth, or uh, 
Latin youth are very, very, um, they don't necessarily know their language very well. I don't necessarily know my language very well. I've been learning for the past two years, and um, it's just a very common experience that happens in kindergarten, that once you're surrounded by English speakers, you just lose the language. And you, and you know, and then it, depending on your family background, like, it's hard to teach that language to the child if it's not being reinforced in school. So it became um, a lot about um, culture loss. But, it, but even the notion of culture loss to me became a difficult thing. Like I didn't necessarily like the phrase culture loss because it implies that the way, the way that I exist currently is wrong in some way or it's somehow incorrect. And the, what the reality of the, sh the show, I think, tackles this big thing about the older generation. And I think the ideas that they have or the boxes that are sort of put upon the youth that are, don't necessarily fit as well, just circumstantially, you know? So like what? I mean, I think um, there's a lot about just the language of Spanish. Like, that's a big thing, right? A lot of Latin youth don't necessarily speak the language as well as their as their elders so it, it's sort of um and what happens is that um it's such a big there's this idea of like purity of existence purity striving for this sort of cultural purity that doesn't necessarily exist <laughs> that um that it's sort of that's what i sort of i'm thinking about when i talk about boxes you know and so on one i am a big proponent for you know the idea that we should be teaching um, our kids Spanish. We should be. However, there is often this sort of toxic um, element of it that's very much, um, well, it's your mother's fault that you don't speak Spanish, which one is like a very sexist thing to say. Um, I got a lot of that. But, um, but also like, oh, you're a disgrace to your, to your culture, eres una vergüenza, all these things. And I think, um, well, how then would a Latin, would a, would the, how can you expect a, a Latin kid to want to embrace their own culture if that's the attitude that's being thrown at them, you know? And so I think the, um, a lot of this piece comes from that frustration, I think. And also um, just the realization that we are the com a combination of all the places we've been, not just where we're from. So, it sounds like the piece is aspirational. It has some desires in it. Mm -hmm. Like you sound, from what you've been describing, as someone who's caught between a rock and a hard place in terms mm -hmm. of your own cultural identity. And mm -hmm. you know, you don't like the term culture loss, and mm -hmm. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But um, what do you think you aspire to as a better way? Does your does your show try to get at that? Are you I mean, giving I, yeah. examples? Mm -hmm. So I think um, the big there's the thesis question of how do we access the culture? How do we reconcile these problems, right? And I think the biggest thing that the the answer that the piece has is to create your own. Uh, um, so there's a lot of sort of elements of this piece that sort of have to do with creating your own culture melting of cultures, allowing all these things, allow, allowing all the complexities and the paradoxes of, of the self to just exist as is. 
So um, this piece uses a lot of, um, um, has a lot of object theater work with um, ranas. Rana, ranas are, um, uh, it's a traditional Colombian fabric, similar to a poncho, but made of different um, fabrics. And um, there's a lot of, so object theater is also um, the act of taking an object and um, playing with it for several hours to discover all the additional uses for it. So this rana that I put over my head is not just you know, uh, a fabric that I wear. It's also um, a shield. It's also a, a, you know, a little peephole. I put my head through the, the hole of the, of the rana to use it as a, uh, to look through it. You know, it's also a puppet. So it's all these, it's the idea that um, through finding all these additional uses of this fabric, it in, in essence, you are sort of creating your own culture. You're creating all these uses of this fabric that um, don't necessarily have to be it, its original purpose, you know? That's cool. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. like you're <laughs> adapting it mm -hmm. to your use and mm -hmm. claiming it as your own in your own way. Yeah, and it's, the Rana is honestly a character in itself. Like, I, this interview should honest, the Rana should be right here talking about <laughs> is it in your backpack no it can't it's big it's a big <laughs> heavy fabric it can't fit in this backpack but it, it should honestly be right next to me talking because it has become such a character and such a i do so many things with this fabric and there, there, there's even addition multiple on us so there's this um so we talked about the ideas of like well if this rana is this character what would these other ranas be what is my relationship to this rana so there's one that's actually not a rana at all. It's a poncho. It's actually this super cheesy, tacky. It's so tacky. It's this. Um, it's this poncho, and on it it says 100% Colombiano, it, and it has a. And it's like very. And so it's this very. It's the idea that like, if this rana, rana, and I use air quotes for that, um, is a character, then it's an imposter because it's not truly a rana. It's a poncho. That's what it is. And then there's all, and then, you know, there's all these, this work that's being done with these objects. The work that we're in, the phase that we're now in development is discovering a relationship to these, um, to these fabrics, to these, uh, to these garments and, and what it means to the piece as a whole. And even like my relationship to them on stage, you know, how do I feel about each individual rana? So, are you saying that your piece is still in transition? Oh no, I mean, I think like this whole month is dedicated to um, just an intensive rehearsal process. And I think um, what we have discovered from our residency, um, we're, we were in residence with Fringe Arts for about a week, about two weeks ago. And we discovered that um, we are so far ahead of the curve. We've essentially like dry teched the piece already. We've, we've, tech feels like it's going to be such a smooth process. And um, the work that we're doing now is doing full runs of the whole show and seeing um, parts that can be moved, parts that can be moved for the sake of, um, um, you know, how it feels in, in sequence, how it um, makes sense from start to finish. And also um, working closely with our designers and our movement um, coaches to make sure that 
I should name their names. <laughs> um, movement coach Elias Harris, um, production designer um, Logan Cryer, who are people who are, um, have been asking all the tough questions, all the good questions, um, making sure that um, it looks good. <laughs> because there's so much movement that's actually happening in front of these projections. Because what I didn't want this piece to be was a, um, just a tour, me pointing at a projector saying what's happening in front of the projector rather and what it is now is me um in a chair actually like doing all these movements um that feels either perpendicular to or parallel to what's happening in the projection on google maps okay <laughs> that's a little mysterious mm -hmm. but yeah <laughs> who, who's the audience who's your ideal audience for this piece I thought long and hard about that, and I think when it comes to people who it's for, and this is such a particular thing, I think it is largely for members of the Latin community who have very little to no Spanish-speaking capabilities. And I think that is really, this is a piece for them. I think... Um, I think ultimately we've done a lot of work in like finding a Latin audience, making sure that you know that we that we have the audience that we're looking for, and I think that is it's almost like a tribute to them. So mm -hmm. you're talking kind of a generation here, also mm -hmm. the way we were talking before about the telenovelas and the mm -hmm. anime is a generational split. Mm -hmm. Those who do not know Spanish, there's probably a generation there yeah. that's young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it happens in kindergarten, like I said. I think, and it depends on which school you're going to. Um, I mean, I went to school in Miami, and I think I was one of the few Latin kids in that school. So I, I just lost it. It was gone um, pretty quickly. And before, my mother had told me that before the age of five, I spoke very fluently. And then once kindergarten happened, it was all gone. And what I've actually discovered um, in my own, in my own um, attempts to actually learn the language is that it's kind of inside of you. Like, it is sort of embedded. Whether I know it or not, it is something that I've sort of acclimated to quite quickly um, in the two years that I've learned it. I just got back from a trip to Colombia, and I found that I was more or less able to hold my own in a conversation. You know, and there's always learning to do, and I don't think... This is another part of it, is that language learning will never truly happen, necessarily, without um, immersion or being very surrounded by Spanish speakers. And so that's a big part of it, too, I think, is um, Spanish, I think, I mean, language learning in general is very difficult if you don't have anything to reinforce it with in your environment. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. how was Colombia? Was that your first trip? No, I've been to Colombia six to eight times. Um, this was the first time I visited in 10 years. Um, and so I was sort of in an introspective place. Um, I had done a lot of, the most that I, the, what had changed considerably was um, all the reading I had done. You know, all the, all the, um, the sort of what we're used to hearing about Colombia versus what Colombia actually is upon closer inspection when you're actually on the land. 
And um, yeah, I think I've sort of observed a lot um, about the culture that um, both met and, and defied my expectations, for better or worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you have family down there? Oh yeah, I mean, I think my entire family, um, uh, we have Colombian heritage. And I don't, it was, that was also another thing about um, an experience that I had was um, the difference in, you know, family values. I mean, I was brought up in a, in a smaller household. It was like the three of us, me, my mom, and my brother. So I think, um, and then to go back to Colombia and literally have 20 cousins thrown at you and you don't remember any of their names. And so um, knowing that difference, I think, was pretty important for me, especially with regards to the work that I'm doing now. Can you talk about how you parse your name? Your name is Carlos Roa. But yeah. You, you tweak it variously. Mm -hmm. So talk yeah. about that. So when I moved to this city, um, I chopped off the OS from my name. And it wasn't, I think a lot of people had, were confused about it. I think, and I, inevitably, when you look at my name the way that I put it, uh, the way I display it as an artist, it does bag a lot of questions. But when I moved here, I was actually Carl Roa. And that was who I was, and that was how I introduced myself to people. And it wasn't because I was rejecting my identity. I think that's everybody's first assumption. But rather, it was because I was so sick of people asking people, asking me um, why I didn't speak Spanish. So it became, every time I had the conversation, it became this very tiresome thing where they're like, they, you know, it's, it's 20 questions, you know? Well, why didn't, why did you, your mother did something wrong. Your mother had to have done something wrong in order for that to happen. Well, why, you, why aren't you learning Spanish? Well, Who what's are wrong these with, judgmental people that every, you're well, going it's, around you know, with? It's, it's, I want to say that it's a specific group of people, but it's not everyone asks the question. And, it, and so I realized, like, no matter where I go, I can't escape that question. But what I can do is protect myself by chopping off the OS. But sort of what happened gradually was that there was a compromise that was being made. I couldn't, I felt, um, I was sort of trapped in this very, um, very, very white environment um, of, of Drexel University. And so I sort of felt, um, and even, even just like the, all the people in my life, and I felt like, well, I just, I felt like there was a huge compromise that I was making in chopping off the OS. So it became such a tricky thing, because on one hand, I was protecting the sanctity of my identity, but on another, I wasn't, I, I wasn't doing that. So I went back to, um, I had to sort of think really hard about what I was doing with my name. And what I had done now is um, I changed, um, it's Carlos Roa now, but now there's a parentheses um, where the OS is. So it's Carl, set of parentheses, OS, Roa. And I think when you do something like that, it's a, it can come across as a very provocative gesture. However, I love explaining the name. I think it's important to explain the name. I think people need to know about why the name has been changed in that way. And I think um, it's what it is, is, is the duality of those two identities. <laughs> um, you know, both being Carl and Carlos at the same time. I think that's what the parentheses embodies. 
also just really sort of immediately identifying like identity is a complex thing. Um, being immediate about like, hey, <laughs> I'm not simple. <laughs> I'm not this simple thing that you can sort of tell me that I am. And I think that's, that's a lot of the reasoning behind the name change. So how do you introduce yourself to I people? just say Carlos now. And I think, um, you know, but, but in email signatures and in, um, in artist resumes and all these uh, different things that I, um, when I identify myself, when I display, when I present myself, I should say, as an artist, it is always parentheses os. When you see it in writing, you will always see the parentheses. Um, but when I, I introduce myself, um, it's Carlos. So hi, I'm Carlos Roa. <laughs> I'm so fascinated um, by just the brief description you gave of your process when you were talking about doing object-based work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious sort of when that became a huge part of your process. Is that something you've always done? No, I think um, so in this, this whole project, like the really um, when I started collaborating with people, it started in September when I did this thing called the Headlong Performance Institute. And um, there was this thing that was being taught to us called object theater. And I sort of took to it very quickly because it's such a simple um, thing to do, actually. You know, the idea that you spend enough time with an object, you start to learn all the things that this object can do beyond its original purpose. And it felt to me, it felt so right for it to be such a big feature of this piece. And um, a lot of the object theater work that I do um, is alone. Um, or with my collaborator, Elias Harris, um, who is my movement coach. He, whether it's me being alone, um, spending time in my own apartment with this Rana, um, playing with it, seeing what it can do, or with Elias, um, showing, you know, presenting to all my collabor collaborators, hey, I discovered 60 uses for this Rana, and I'm about to show you right now. Um, and then, you know, my director, uh, Jose Aviles, um, sort of um, looking at the, the uses of this object and seeing how it can factor into it as a whole. Um, it's sort of the object, the function of the object theater is really both a, a, a device, you know, meant to move one moment to the next, but also to establish relationship to the Rana. The Rana um, with a capital R now <laughs> is how I refer to it. You talked about um, creating culture, and I think mm -hmm. somewhere I watched part of your, um, I think it was a GoFundMe video. Ah, yes, yes, yes. And you talk about one of the inspirations for this piece being a, an idea about sort of what is your folk dance or mm -hmm. something to that effect? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a, that was a lot of work that I did with Elias. Um, and Elias um, and I, there's this big idea of if I am a culture, what is my folk dance, right? And I think um, that was a lot of work we did um, with both using my body, you know? I am such a big bear. <laughs> I, ha I am very proud of my bear body, but you know, and with that comes um, a certain different movement style, a certain different need, a set of needs for my body um, that factors into what this folk dance is. So um, when that was happening in those rehearsals, you know, generating this folk dance, um, we had, had to sort of had this conversation about, well, what is the music for this folk dance? Mm -hmm. So there's actually this track um, 
that we play from this anime <laughs> called um, Scryad. Um, and it, and it, the, the track, um, it sounds super reminiscent of tango and, and salsa, but then you start to listen to the lyrics and they're all in Japanese. And, and, we, and I felt like this is the song. This is the song of my, of my folk dance. And, um, and so I would actually, um, we, we would sort of start devising movements um, based around this dance, you know, finding the rhythm of this um, song and really building um, a set of movement, movements around it. So thinking also about um, in the dance, what are movements that represent displacement from culture, but also um, my own individual particular culture. And so there are things about um, um, this that happens where I like lift up my hand, lay it flat, and I'm looking at it like a cell phone, <laughs> and then putting it back into my pocket. That's part of the dance, but also taking um, um, different movements that are very typical to Latin dance and letting that be a part of it as well. And sort of, once again, this melting <laughs> of culture, um, of different cultural tropes, um, ideas of movements, and putting it all into one dance with the Rana, <laughs> también. <laughs> That's the idea of the individual as a culture, I think, mm -hmm. is so provocative and so rich and such a big idea. And that's not a question. I'm sure, sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's become, it's become such a, it's progressed so, it used to be such a different piece. And now, what it is now, I mean, it's, it's not even, because it's a solo piece, um, there is that trap of be, it being like, well, this is Carlos's project. But really, it has been the combination of Elias's ideas and, and, and Jose's ideas and, and, um, and, uh, and Logan's ideas also. So I think, I just, I feel so happy that it's become such a collaborative process. One other thing that you said in that video, I believe, on your website, was you were talking about non-Eurocentric art and mm -hmm. how it's so important now mm -hmm. to focus on non-Eurocentric art. And mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. So can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think in the past few years, I've just gotten so angry <laughs> about a lot of um, gatekeeping practices, about a lot of art that gets chosen whether it be by funders or um, just any artistic, artistic directors in general. And I think, you know, there came a point where I could only do so much complaining about it, about not having a seat when, you know, when I actually had to build my own damn table. And I think that's what this, um, that's sort of one of the, one of the um, big emotional, um, uh, catalysts for this project, I think is, um, well, I have to build my own community because no one, they're not going to do it for me. They're not going to do it for me. And so I have to, you know, build the table <laughs> and, and, you know, find, you know, my community and who my people are. And so I think um, it was interesting, too, because I think while I was Carl, I was almost like in this haze, like in this, 
it was so weird. It was like I was tricked into thinking I was white. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I think I didn't necessarily know what I was doing with my art, with, um, with uh, my communities or how I operated in those communities. And I think um, that's sort of the stand, my, my perspective now on taking a stand for not making Eurocentric art. Which isn't to be like, oh, Eurocentric art, screw it, you know? But I think, um, you know, I, now I think I'm far more conscious about my role in that conversation and in the, in the practices that I, that I my artistic practice in general, um, you know, thinking very hard about who's on my team and, you know, what perspective do they have to lend. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have a manifesto almost, although I wouldn't really put it there that is strongly. A, there is a, a manifesto de los ositos incipiente. No kidding. It is a part of the show. Okay, so yeah. there you are. You are an empowered person mm -hmm. of your own right. You made mm -hmm. your table. That's mm -hmm. a great metaphor. Yeah. Come out, y'all. <laughs> Come out to... Uh, yeah, tell us when and where. And Dean Mountains will be premiering for this year's Fringe Festival um, from September 7th to the 15th at Taller Puerto Riqueño. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thank you, Roberta. <laughs>